When Vladimir Putin, president of the Russian Federation, ordered troops across the Ukrainian border on the morning of February 24th this year using the flimsiest of excuses, many were struck by the similarities of how Hitler had ordered the German army into Poland back on September 1st, 1939, and many commentators continue to draw comparisons between the two dictators. And yet, if you look at things carefully, the similarities between Pootiepoot, which was George W. Bush's nickname for Putin, though probably not to his face, and Little Boney, as the British called Napoleon Bonaparte, I think you can see more similarities. Hitler was on a mission to change the world. Napoleon just wanted empire. So we'll take a quick look at the man on everyone's minds, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, a wander into what may or may not be going on in that bean of his, and a brief look at the Ukrainian invasion. And yes, let's just call it what it is. It's a war, as well as some possible outcomes to that conflict. Though it's still early days, so who knows what will happen. Hey, maybe the aliens will finally get here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Pooty Poot on the Prowl. V. Putin takes center stage. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain... That's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. First, let's take a quick look at Napoleon. Little Little Boney. Napoleon was a soldier, rising up through the hierarchy to the rank of general by the time the War of the First Coalition broke out, in which several European nations attacked the Kingdom of France, worried that a popular revolution was about to break out there. It did, and then the Republic was formed, so then they all fought against that. Napoleon was so successful in Egypt and Italy during the fighting that he was made commander-in-chief of all French armed forces in 1796. He bolstered the beleaguered army of Italy, which was French, winning several key battles and swelling its ranks to over 50,000 men. The next year, he declared war on the Papal States, wiping out their soldiers and dissolving the papacy in 1798. Then the War of the Second Coalition broke out, with many of the previous coalition members banding together again to put down France and restore what they saw as the natural order of things, kings and the like. Again, though, Napoleon was triumphant, often by taking daring risks that then turned out in his favor. Now, Napoleon was fighting, in theory, for the newly formed republic, but he didn't seem to really give two figs about it. He was just really good at strategy, and he liked warfare. The new French government had an election, and through a lot of behind-the-scenes wrangling, Napoleon essentially seized power, immediately stripping the government of its autonomy and setting up a dictatorship. His title was Provisional Consul of France for a month in late 1799, and then, when he grabbed more power, the First Consul of France, a title he would keep until 1804. The populace, though, kind of adored him and didn't seem to mind all that much. And he kept on fighting, in the Alps and in northern Italy, in Egypt, and he kept winning. Britain, one of the main antagonists in both coalition wars, signed the Treaty of Amiens in France in 1802, ending the hostilities. Napoleon's popularity was at an all-time high, and he rode that wave to change the political game board again, along with his brother helping falsify voting results, and he got himself elected ruler for life. He spent some time trying to quell anti-slavery rebellions of French holdings overseas, and Britain, not happy with the treaty they'd signed, started massing more allies to finally get rid of this French upstart, and a new war seemed imminent. 
To raise money for the coming conflict, France sold a massive territory in North America to the American president, Thomas Jefferson, a land deal that would become known as the Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubled the land area of the newly formed United States. This also sort of cemented the fact that Britain was never going to get those colonies back. Britain declared war in 1803, aided by Sweden, then Russia, then Austria, and soon enough it was pretty much everyone against France. Napoleon decided he needed a new title, so he had himself crowned Emperor of France in 1804, to be followed by King of Italy in 1805, and then later Protector of the Confederation of the Rhine in 1806. A massive series of conflicts set the continent ablaze, but France kept on winning, until they didn't. And then things started to turn for the self-styled emperor. Finally, his officers mutinied, and Napoleon was forced to step down. The former emperor was exiled to the small Tuscan island of Elba, which is 29 kilometers by 18 kilometers, while his wife and son were exiled to Austria. His wife, Josephine, who by all accounts he was deeply in love with, died while he was on Elba, and so, with nothing really left to lose, he again began massing forces. Gathering up an army reputed to be 200,000 strong, he marched on Paris. Many of his former enemies once again arrayed against him, and he was solidly defeated by Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo on July 15, 1815. This time, he was exiled to an even smaller island, St. Helena, which is only 17 kilometers long and 10 wide, and it is way out there in the South Atlantic. Here, he played a lot of solitaire and complained that people were not deferential enough to him and didn't treat him like the emperor he knew he was. His health failed, and he died on May 5, 1821, age 51. For the next hundred years or so, Napoleon Bonaparte was widely considered throughout Europe and beyond as the personification of ambition and evil. It was not until the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis that historians really began to reevaluate Napoleon and note that, you know, not everything he did was so awful. And yes, though war initially was rather thrust upon him, he kept at it because A, he liked it, B, he understood it, and C, he was astonishingly ambitious. Pooty Poot. Vladimir Putin was a KGB agent serving in Dresden, Germany, undercover as a translator. He speaks fluent German when the Berlin Wall came down. He resigned after hardliners tried to overthrow Gorbachev, got into government in the city of St. Petersburg, where a friend of his was mayor, and he was investigated for fraud to the tune of $93 million. He headed the liberal pro-government political party there, and then, after his pal lost a mayoral re-election bid, he left for Moscow. He finished his PhD dissertation, but it turned out that at least 15 pages of that were taken directly from an American textbook, though investigators later said it may have been inadvertent plagiarism. He continued working in government, delaying the process by which the USSR's former 46 individual regions could define the extent of their autonomy now that the Soviet Union was gone, and Yeltsin made him director of the FSB, which was the successor to the KGB. Thirteen months later, in August 1999, Putin became the fifth prime minister of Russia in 18 months. After a series of apartment bombings that killed 307 people, an invasion by Islamic jihadists of the Republic of Dagestan, and an attempt by Chechens to break away from the Federation, Putin took a hard line militarily supporting pro-Russian forces in those areas. Those bombings, by the way, are now thought to have been a false flag operation conducted by Russia. It is noted that before the bombings, Putin had an approval rating of 2%. Yes, 2%. During the Second Chechen War, Yeltsin surprised everybody by suddenly resigning, and Putin stepped in as acting president. His very first act was to issue a decree that all corruption charges pending against Yeltsin and his family would be dropped. Two years later, he made Yeltsin's immunity a federal law. Oh, and that also included corruption investigations about himself when he'd been in St. Petersburg. In 2000, elections were held, and Putin won with 53% of the vote. Early on, he reached what he termed a grand bargain with the oligarchs who had been stealing every single thing not nailed down under the Yeltsin regime, in which they unconditionally supported his government and they got to keep all the wealth and power they'd managed to grab. That's the carrot. The stick is that, as of 2000, Putin has had the legal right to dismiss the heads of any of the Federation's 89 areas for any reason. 
In 2003, Chechnya was reabsorbed into the Russian Federation, though an insurgency continued for many years, including the Belsen school siege by rebels back in September 2004. Putin won his second presidential election in March 2004 with 73% of the vote. He said he wanted to stabilize things in his country, bring back a good, higher standard of living for Russians. But the kleptocratic shenanigans of Yeltsin days left many powerful folks running around and multiple corruption investigations were ongoing. As many Russians began thinking maybe they were moving towards a more Western model of transparency, journalists began ferreting out dirty goings-on in many institutions, like the Russian army. One such journalist, Anna Politskovskaya, was shot in her apartment building lobby on Putin's birthday. Coincidence? Perhaps. Putin also changed the way that local elections were held. Instead of candidates being chosen by popular vote and then those candidates publicly voted on, candidates would be chosen by, and I think you can see where this is going, him or whoever was president, and then the public would vote. This remained the case until 2012. In 2007, things had not markedly improved for most Russians and demonstrations took place in many cities. These were brutally put down by police and at least 150 people were arrested. With a parliamentary election looming, the current PM asked Putin to dissolve the government so Putin would have a, quote, free hand to, quote, ensure things were done, quote, correctly. The party United Russia won a clear majority in the December elections with 64% of the vote. Now, Russia earlier had implemented term limits, so Putin couldn't run for a third term. So, Dmitry Medvedev, first deputy prime minister, was elected president, and in May 2008, he promptly turned around and made Putin the prime minister. Things looked rosy, except then the Great Recession was well underway, and Russia ended up not doing so well. Putin had ordered that official ties be formed between the Russian government and Russian separatists in the Georgian provinces of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Georgia wasn't too happy about this, and they became even less happy when the Russians shot down a Georgian recon aircraft. Russia said, no, no, that was a NATO plane that shot it down, which was patently untrue. Russia then said Georgia was massing soldiers at its border and was planning to invade Abkhazia one of their own provinces, so they couldn't really technically invade it. Putin said Russia would have no choice but to retaliate on Abkhazia's behalf. So, while Russia sent 2,500 more troops into the area, international observers could find no evidence of an army massing in Georgia. It just seemed like a story Russia was spinning to justify what was clearly going to be an invasion of their own. Sound familiar? On August 1st, open hostilities broke out, lasted a couple of weeks. The Russians withdrew mainly, but then passed a unanimous resolution officially recognizing the two breakaway provinces as independent nations that could do whatever they wanted. No other country recognized this, so the Russians started building up troops again in the area to, quote, protect the people that they had decided were independent. To this day, Georgia and the UN consider the provinces to be territory occupied by Russia. This was the first time since the USSR had broken apart that Russia had used military force against an independent nation to further its political aims. As we know, it would not be the last. The Russians issued the Medvedev Doctrine, which stated that Russia recognized the primacy of the fundamental principles of international law, that the world should be multipolar, whatever that means, but probably it means the United States should not be the only superpower and Russia should certainly be at least one of the others. That Russia never wants confrontation with other countries, and here's the nut of it, that Russia has the duty to protect Russians anywhere they happen to be and that there are certain regions of the world where Russian interests should trump international law. So, we respect the order of things, except when we decide that we don't have to, especially when it comes to territories that were once part of the Soviet Union. Oh yes, and there are still ongoing investigations of atrocities and war crimes committed by the Russian forces. Almost 200,000 people were displaced by the hostilities, and to this day there are still about 20,000 who cannot get home. Another byproduct of the Russo-Georgian War was that Georgia's pending membership in NATO was put on indefinite hold. Hmm. Medvedev said during a talk to officers at a military base that Georgia for sure would have joined the alliance if Russia hadn't attacked. Russia had been displeased by a massive NATO expansion in 2004 when three former Warsaw Pact countries, Romania, Slovakia, and Bulgaria, plus one former Yugoslav, Slovenia, and three former Soviet republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, all joined NATO. This was the largest expansion in NATO's history. 
The year after the Russo-Georgian War, two more former Yugoslav nations, Albania and Croatia, joined NATO. I mean, they could kind of see which way the wind was blowing. And then two more joined later, Montenegro in 2017 and North Macedonia in 2020. This brought NATO's total up to 30 countries with a combined population of about 946 million people, about 12% of the entire world population. This is more than six times the 144 million people in the Russian Federation. A president's President's castle castle is his armor. armor. In 2011, President Medvedev suggested that, you know, Putin should be allowed to run for president again. And then he would be prime minister again. This was termed rokirvoka, which is the Russian word for castling in chess. Why, they could just keep flipping back and forth like this forever. Forever. During parliamentary elections in December 2011, multiple protests against electoral fraud occurred, which were again brutally squashed, with help from the army and various paramilitary groups that Putin had helped organize in the previous years. Putin ran and won with almost 64% of the vote, though there's plenty of evidence that maybe that number was, shall we say, less than accurate. There were more protests against what sure seemed like a power grab in clear violation of Russian law. One of the most infamous at the time occurred in February 2012 when the feminist punk group Pussy Riot got arrested. On May 6, somewhere between 8,000 and 20,000 protesters gathered in Moscow, a gathering once again stomped on by the police and paramilitary thugs, with at least 80 people injured and 450 people arrested. Putin supporters organized a counter-rally claiming 130,000 participants. This remains today the largest single pro-Putin gathering ever. The very next day, after Pussy Riot was arrested, May 7th, Putin became president for the third time. He immediately issued 14 of what he called the May Decrees, outlining a domestic strategy to improve the lives of Russians and allow the country to compete internationally with clear benchmarks for measuring progress. All very nice, except there seemed to be no funding mechanisms included, and many wondered just how this plan was going to become a reality. From this period forward, the term mutual management has been used to describe how Putin and the rest of the governments and oligarchs act. Basically, Putin gets to do anything he wants to, and they support him in exchange for access to the spoils of kleptocracy, which is still very much in full swing. Many of the promises of the made decrees had been made and not fulfilled, and the public was getting kind of fed up with this whole United Russia party. So, a new party was formed, the All-Russia People's Front, and then Putin became the head of that instead, as if it was the party's fault and not his. A new series of laws came into being that allowed the government to designate whoever they liked as foreign agents. These people would then forfeit any rights that still remained. This was mainly used to stifle dissent and then started being used specifically to target LGBTQ plus people and activists who were painted as pedophiles by internal propaganda. The media kept getting squeezed as well. In 2013, Russia ranked 148th out of 179 countries for freedom of the press by Reporters Without Borders on their Freedom Index. Last year, they ranked 150th out of 180 countries. Incidentally, U.S. ranked 44th last year, just behind Taiwan and South Korea, four places behind the Czech Republic, and only a little bit above Tonga, Papua New Guinea, and Romania. Ukraine ranked 94th, Belarus 158th. Back during his first presidential term, he told the media that their job was to create peace and stability. They should consider themselves to be sort of like the 17th century Romanov Tsars, who came in at the end of the time of troubles and established order with a combination of iron-fisted authoritarianism and negligence. When the Winter Olympics took place in the Russian city of Sochi in 2014, Russia sent troops into Crimea, a peninsula in the Black Sea in southern Ukraine, claiming that the people there all wanted to be part of Russia, not Ukraine. A rather problematic referendum was held, and Russia said, look, 95% of Crimeans want to reunite with Mother Russia. Of course, Ukraine and most of the rest of the world knew that Russia had been sending Russians into this area for years for the express purpose of gaining a majority who would then declare that in their hearts they were Russians. Putin had done the same thing in Georgia six years before. Many found the procedures of the referendum to be suspect and basically said no. And so Russia, I mean Putin, angry that the world was not obeying his orders, invaded. Conflict raged for almost six weeks, with Russia clearly in control by the end of March 2014. Pro-Russia Crimeans took control of the governing apparatus and even switched the clocks to Moscow time. 
Part of the war had also taken place in the eastern province of Donbass, but the situation there had turned into something more like a stalemate than any kind of clear victory. Incursions, raids, illegal arrests, and sporadic conflict continued into Ukrainian territory until February 2022 this year. This all includes a large-scale battle for the Donetsk city of Ilovaisk in August and September, which the Russians retained control of. There was also an attempt by pro-Russians to take the city of Maripol, which failed, cross-border shelling along the Donetsk-Ukraine border, and much, much more until things cooled down for a little bit, and in 2015 it settled into what was called a frozen conflict, though there were further incidents. By the end of September 2015, Putin went into Syria, which was having some serious problems of its own. ISIS was swarming over the area and the West was having a hard time helping out the government of Bashar al-Assad against them because he's a well-known tyrant and they don't like him. But just when it looked like the West was going to go ahead and maybe try and defeat ISIS but also try and get rid of Assad, Russia stepped in to support Assad, who after all was the legal government of Syria and isn't that what you Western nations are always going on about, the rule of law, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, if you went against Assad, you would also be going against Russia and that didn't seem like such a great idea. But helping Assad also didn't seem like such a great idea. So Russia gained a check on the international chessboard and the West had to change their stance into one of essentially hand-wringing and inaction. Then the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. came around and it's now been pretty conclusively shown that Russia meddled in that election with the goal of getting Donald Trump elected. Presumably, Trump was seen as sympathetic to Putin's grand schemes or at the very worst, a useful idiot who could be easily manipulated by Russia. Naturally, Russia denied, 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 and then later said, oh, well, it's, quote, theoretically possible that, quote, patriotically minded Russian hackers might have been up to some funny business. Putin later essentially admitted there had been interference in the American electoral process, but he pointed the finger elsewhere, saying, quote, not even Russians, but Ukrainians, Tartars, or Jews, but with Russian citizenship, might have been responsible. Anyway, whoever it was, spoiler, it was Russia, Trump won and began weakening U.S. ties internationally and perhaps most importantly for Russia, attempting to weaken NATO, Putin's nemesis in his plan to establish what he and his bully boys have called the Eurasian Empire, primarily by reincorporating most of the nations and lands that once belonged to the Soviet Union into the current Russian Federation. In 2018, Putin won his fourth presidential term with 76% of the vote. Okay. This is the term he is currently serving, and it expires in 2024. Back in 2018, the law was such that that would be the end of the presidential road for him. No more extra terms. So Putin asked Medvedev again to be PM, and then in 2019, the federal government directly interfered in local elections by eliminating all the candidates that were not in their party either by arresting them on trumped-up charges, causing them to flee, or sometimes just killing them. No surprise, the all-Russia People's Front won big, which prompted protests, which prompted police beatings and mass arrests. In January 2020, Putin put forth the idea that, you know, maybe we should change the Constitution and allow him to remain president, I mean, run for president some more. Medvedev's government resigned, and then a new one was formed. Now, keep in mind, this resignation is not a protest. It was part of the whole plan. With the government gone, the president basically had all the power. Medvedev took the brand new job of deputy chairman of the Security Council, who essentially enforced the Russian president's will. The new PM was Mikhail Mishustin, who'd been the head of the federal tax office for 10 years. Mishustin and Putin worked together, completely restructuring the cabinet, appointing cronies to ministerial positions as part of a longer plan to basically totally change the structure of the government. And then COVID hit, and civil liberties took a bit of a back burner. Initially, Russia was large on the international stage, helping Italy and other afflicted countries. Domestic measures were put in place, much like everywhere else. And Putin isolated himself from physical proximity to other people, meaning that he wasn't even getting the yes-men that he was accustomed to. In July, he amended the Constitution by executive order, which is not how that process is supposed to go, allowing him to run for two more six-year terms once the current one's up in 2024, which means he will remain in power, I I mean could remain in power, (laughs) elections are totally fair here, until 2036. More arrests in various parts of the Federation, more protests, more police brutality. Then Putin began looking to the future. 
One thing he did in December 2020 was sign a bill that grants immunity to all prosecution of any kind to any former Russian president, meaning obviously him and maybe Medvedev since all the other Russian presidents are gone. Throughout 2021, Putin cracked down at home and drew up plans for his Eurasian Empire notion. He made nice with China, since if he was going to start something in the West, he certainly didn't need the Chinese wandering around in his East. And now we have the situation in Ukraine, which Russia insists is not a war, but it totally is. So what's what's up with this this guy? guy? So is Putin a throwback to hardline Soviets like Brezhnev and even Stalin? Or is he more like Hitler? Or is he more like Napoleon? Is he crazy? A cold calculating chess master, a patriot who wants Russia ascendant, an autocrat who craves power for power's sake, a bully who's secretly weak and afraid, a genius, a postmodern John Wayne with a Slavic accent, an idiot, or what? There's a great 2014 article on Politico titled Putin on the Couch, which has several Putinologists trying to figure out just where Pooty Poo's head is or was back then. This includes journalists, academics, former ambassadors, intelligence personnel, and high-ranking government folks. Their entries cover a whole range of assessments. Rational but rash. Certainly not a genius. Russia's restorer. A conspiracy nut. The worst example of Russian tendencies towards vengeful, xenophobic, corrupt authoritarianism. A man of towering intellect driven by deep patriotism. A reactionary who dislikes and does not understand the trappings of modernity. A lonely pessimist who insists on national self-reliance. A former BBC correspondent to Moscow and public relations advisor for the Kremlin just called his section paranoid. Paranoid. Others say, still basically a KGB agent. A man on a mission to regain what was lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. An unhinged pragmatist. Deeply, deeply insecure. A ruthless realist, a man alone, a neo-Soviet, an authoritarian kleptocrat, stuck in the past, a shrewd strategist, a Russian imperialist, and the list goes on and on. Boy, that sure is a lot of differing opinions about one guy. It has been argued that Putin really only cares about money and power. He has said he wanted to be recruited by the KGB and liked having the access and authority that a Communist Party card gave him, though he wasn't really ideologically a communist or really much of anything else. Rational Wiki, in a fantastic page all about Putin, calls him the poster boy for the horseshoe theory. This is a political science notion that the extremes of both the right and the left sort of meet at one place, which is essentially totalitarianism. Let us not forget that Mussolini started off trying to be a communist because he thought he could gain influence and power that way, but his screwball ideas were roundly mocked, and so he went and created his own thing, fascism. So while Putin was nominally a communist at first, he really didn't seem to care one way or another about Marxism and Leninism and all the other isms. He once said Stalin was the most admired man in Russian history, which is not true, but maybe he was telling us something about himself there. Maybe he admired Uncle Joe, not because of his ideology, but because of the way he wielded terror and propaganda to maintain absolute power. And don't forget that when Stalin died, the doctors tried for three days to revive him because they were so afraid of what the consequences would be for having the great leader expire on their watch. There's a concept from Siberia called the Ataman. The idea is this. In really, really, really bad winters, Siberian inhabitants go into these homes they build underground where they stay all winter, never opening the door. But then one day, a truly tough dude comes along who knows what's what and has the fortitude to withstand the harshest conditions. And he goes around to these subterranean shelters and tells people, it's okay now, the weather is turning, and they can come out. This guy is the Ataman, sort of a Siberian superhero who people would then blindly follow because he's such a badass. The word Ataman eventually would become the title for the supreme commander of the Cossack armies. I once read an article that argued this uniquely Russian concept is crucial to understanding Putin and his appeal. Putiput sees himself as the Ataman, or he wants others to see him that way. This is something we see again and again with authoritarian leaders who have no checks on their power and no one to say no to them. They come to see themselves as equivalent with the nation that they dominate and rule. 
Not the individual people, mind you. Those are exploitable, expendable resources to be used in whatever way the leader sees fit. But the concept of the nation. As World War II in Europe was winding down and it became clear the Nazis would lose, Hitler said it was better that the entire German race go extinct because clearly they just weren't strong enough. Subtext, these slobs let me down and if I won't survive, then neither should they. And we've heard similar things from other autocrats in the past as the end of their stories approached. So while Putin clearly has some admiration for certain aspects of fascism, especially the total control of society, he's not really a fascist. And while he inherited the husk of the largest, most powerful communist state at the end of the 20th century, he's not really a communist either, though he is happy to use many of the tactics of either of these ideologies in previous societies to further his own aims. If you think about Europe at the end of World War II, the Soviets had liberated whole nations from the Nazi yoke, but then instead of leaving, they just stayed, you know, to provide security and stability, but really to place puppets and agitators in key positions. So then those countries would, quote, elect a communist government who would then be completely under the Soviet sway, either directly incorporated into the USSR or as a nation beholden to them. And for anyone who thought that they could go their own way, let us remember the lessons of the Prague Spring of 1968. These are similar tactics Putin has used in Georgia and Ukraine and is using today in other former Soviet states like Kazakhstan and Armenia. Put a whole bunch of ethnic Russians in there, get them to start agitating to have their unique Russianness recognized, nay celebrated, concoct fake stories about supposed atrocities by the mean non-Russians against those Russians, maybe a false flag or two, and then, well, we have no choice but to move into the region militarily to protect these poor beleaguered Russians who, after all, just long to be part of Russia again. Well, you might say, why don't you move back to Russia? Because I live here. And this place actually was part of Russia not long ago. And, well, maybe breaking away was a mistake. I mean, look at all the mean things these people do to Russians. They clearly need the order and stability Russia offers. It's imperialist and more than a little bit racist. But that's the playbook. Putin has used it several times before and will continue to use it. Because, so far, it has worked, though with pretty modest gains. Now, however, he seems to have doubled down and is going for a bigger score. Why is that? Many have wondered. Speculations buzz around like flies around a horse on the Great Steps, and the tried-and-true tactic of using disinformation aggressively is now being used on a scale never seen so clearly before. So it seems to be less of a Hitler thing, we are the superior race and all others must bend to our will, and more of a combination of Stalin's, hey, I have absolute authority and am pretty much infallible with Napoleon's, oh, you want to fight? Cool, let's have a fight. and I'll totally win that fight and also I'd like an empire. The difference between Pootipoot and Little Boney is that Napoleon actually had hostile powers arrayed against him at first, while Putin imagines that NATO is just pretending to be a defensive organization that seeks Russia's containment, but really is actively seeking Russia's diminishment. Weaponizing Information all totalitarian societies play fast and loose with what is accepted truth and what is heresy, with steep penalties for those who do not follow the party line, as the saying goes. But in any conflict, the enemy is mocked and caricatured, and this is especially galling to megalomaniacs like Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, and Putin. Take the notion that Napoleon was short and pissed off about it, and so he tried to take over all of Europe and beyond in order to compensate. That image actually comes from political cartoons by British artist Jim Gilray that depicted Napoleon first as a blustering loudmouth, then as a tiny, ineffectual, but angry guy wearing boots too big for him. These later cartoons also dubbed him Little Boney, a nickname that stuck among the British and their allies. But in truth, Napoleon was around 169 centimeters tall, just a hair under Putin, in fact. But at that time, the average height for a man was 167 centimeters. So actually, Napoleon was a little over average in stature. Today, the average is taller, about 176 centimeters or 5 foot 9, at least in the U.S. And taking the world as a whole, the average globally is about 5'7 or 170 centimeters, which is Vladimir Putin's height. It makes him taller than Al Pacino, but shorter than Kanye West and about the same height as James Dean. So there's several articles out there asking if Putin has Napoleon syndrome, well, they make two mistakes. First, 
Putin is not short. Okay, in the U.S., he'd be considered a little bit short, but Americans drink a crap load of milk. And secondly, there is no such thing as Napoleon syndrome. Napoleon wasn't short, and there is zero empirical evidence that short people are more aggressive trying to compensate for their size. So Napoleon, as frustrated, angry, little bony, was not true, but effective nonetheless. In exile on St. Helena in his later days, Napoleon himself reflected that Gilroy's unflattering depictions of him as a tiny temper tantrum throwing child playing dress up, an object of ridicule instead of respect and fear, quote, did more than all the armies of Europe to bring me down. So that was a disinformation campaign that worked. Except it wasn't disinformation. Gilray was not claiming he was drawing accurate images of Napoleon. They were caricatures to make him look bad. This is part of what always happens when there are two sides and one is good or us and the other is bad or them. They are morons, fools, clumsy, thieves, murderers, rapists, evil, while we are insightful, intelligent, wise, agile, respect the rule of law and human life, and virtuous. This happens in every human endeavor that involves taking sides, from family game nights and high school basketball games to political races and even global conflict. And sometimes spurious information is used as a weapon. During World War II, there were whole allied military groups that went into the wild with huge high-quality speakers and record players, that was the tech of the time, to make it sound like huge convoys were passing. A large fleet of planes and ships made out of balsa wood was built and left in northern England for the Nazis to see, so they'd think that the land invasion of Europe was coming from somewhere besides the beaches of Normandy. In times of conflict, there's also the fog of war. Participants in military operations on the ground never have truly accurate situational awareness, with messages, instructions, and intelligence often lagging. This is partly why the old military axiom that no plan survives contact with the enemy is so often true. Even today, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine in what is essentially the first live-streamed war, it feels like we have all the information, but we totally don't. In fact, no one does, and that lack of certainty creates openings that can be exploited. Putin started off his invasion by saying that Ukraine and NATO were planning on attacking Russia, which was not true. Then he said Ukraine was trying to get some nuclear weapons, which was not true. Then Ukraine needed to demilitarize themselves, which I guess meant that they should just get rid of their army, and also denazify themselves, which made the world go, huh? Since the Ukrainian president is um, Jewish. Denazification is a term used for the period after World War II in which West Germany and the victorious allies set out to basically get anyone who was a member of the Nazi party out of public office. It is used specifically for that and that alone. So what was Putin saying? German Nazis were in the Ukrainian government? If so, they'd have to be neo-Nazis since the official Nazi party was disbanded 77 years ago and anyone from that time would be real old. Yes, some Ukrainians way back then did collaborate with the Nazis during World War II, but as mentioned, it was a long time ago. Or was he in some ham-handed way trying to say the Ukrainian government is like Nazis? This is actually kind of a classic anti-Semitic trope to say the real Nazis were or are the Jews. This ties into the whole Holocaust denial thing. Is that what Putin's doing? Most insiders think he's just using terminology that is highly charged emotionally, not trying to be accurate in any real-world sense. In fact, all of the rhetoric coming from him seems to be this sort of messaging. It looks weird and confusing and confused and has caused some Western commentators to wonder if old Pooty Poot has maybe lost his marbles. What needs to be kept in mind is that nothing he says about this whole Ukraine affair is for us. It is for the Russian populace. That is his sole audience. State media has strict controls on what those people see and hear about what's going on. Anything else the messaging says is a lie. Evil is trying to get Russia. State media, and therefore Putin, is telling them. So the hardships you are experiencing and will continue to experience are worth it because we are fighting the modern equivalent of the Nazis here. For those of us outside of that thought universe, we know he's talking nonsense and not even very clever nonsense. And it continues. They agree upon a ceasefire, which gets reported in Russia, and then Russia immediately breaks it, and that does not get reported. 
Oh, that there was shelling gets reported, but state media in Russia says it wasn't us, it was them, and so on and so on it goes. And of course, the troll army has been mobilized on Russia's behalf as well, which is really no surprise since they've been doing everything they can to undermine the social fabric of the West for years now. And I'd argue they've been doing a pretty good job at it, but that is a whole nother episode someday. Others have jumped on as well, those who, for whatever reason, want to cause a ruckus. And yes, the conspiracy theories are a-flying. In fact, the messaging from Putin sounds like a complicated and not very well put together conspiracy theory all by itself. I mean, the specifics keep changing. Ukraine is developing chemical weapons. No, biological weapons. Wait, they're Nazis. No, they're committing genocide against Russians. They have nukes, or they want nukes, or they're killing their own people. Meta is an extremist organization. Power has been restored to the Chernobyl plant, and so on. You have to wonder why they even bother to say anything. It's just throwing everything in the kitchen sink to see what, if anything, sticks with his audience, which again, is not us. It is the Russian populace. This is what the Rand Corporation has called the Russian fire hose of falsehood propaganda model. Here's a quick rundown of some of the conspiracy theories I've come across since the invasion has started. It's wag the dog. This is the most common trope in the conspiracy. The whole thing is fake news run by the Ukrainians, maybe with NATO's help. All the video footage is fake. The people are crisis actors. Interestingly, totally false images and videos are circulating around the web showing all kinds of things, often annotated with bad spelling, idiosyncratic capitalization, and lots of exclamation points. Always check sources before reporting or sharing or even reacting to something you see on social media platforms. Every interaction, no matter what it is, boosts that post's profile on the social media site so it spreads to more and more people. And sometimes the video or image you're seeing may be real, but it has been misleadingly or inaccurately labeled. The invasion is real, but it's not the Russians, it's the Jews. Of course, oh, of course it, is. it is. Others point the finger at what they call the Khazarian invasion or the Khazarian mafia, which people like QAnon influencer Anne Vandersteel cleverly acronym to KM. The Khazars were a semi-nomadic people who settled in a large area along the eastern and northern shores of the Black Sea, becoming one of the largest trading empires of the 6th to 10th century CE. There's a story that the ruler, the Khan, one day decided he'd hear what the proponents of the three big monotheistic religions had to say. And whoever made the best case for their faith, well, the entire Khazar people who followed a shamanist religion would convert en masse to the winner. So, representatives from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam made their way to the Khan's court and pled their cases. In the end, the Khan liked Judaism the best. The Khazars all converted and vanished from the history books. Anyway, when Russians or pro-Russians go on about Khazars, what they really mean is Jews. Jews, Jews that don't that look, look like, like Jews. Jews. I would note that since this whole tale hinges on conversion, it sort of destroys the core anti-Semitic argument that Jews are racially inferior subhumans, unless somehow converting to a religion instantly changes your genetic code. Some QAnoners are claiming that yes, Putin is invading, but he's doing it to try and dismantle the global child peddling cannibalistic, cannibalistic satanic, satanic cult, cult that, that Trump, Trump was, was also, also fighting. fighting. Oh, oh my God, these God, people. people. Some think the whole operation is to destroy a secret U.S.-Ukrainian bioweapons lab or labs that were being used to create a real super virus that would kill 80% of the planet and allow the new world order to finally, finally get rolling. I came across one speculation that maybe Putin knows that this is the only way to get to the world to quickly switch to green energy, so he's willing to take the financial and reputational hit in the cause of the greater good. Here's a mystery that has engendered a lot of speculation. Before Russian forces crossed the border, photos surfaced of tanks, rocket launchers, and other military vehicles with big letters Z's painted on them or Z if you're British, the Latin alphabet letter, the last one in our alphabet, not the Cyrillic character Z, which looks kind of like a number three. What did these big white Zs mean? Keyboards were banged away on and some said, aha, it probably stands for Zapobedi, which is Russian for to victory. No, said others, it stands for Zapod, which is Russian for West, which means he's planning on attacking NATO. 
Others said, no, the Z stands for Zelensky, the Ukrainian PM and number one on the Kremlin's hit list. But the fact is, no one could really say for sure. The open source investigators Bellingcat said they had never seen it before and they could get no clear indication as to its origin. Maybe it's a way of identifying certain vehicles as belonging to a particular task force or echelon that only the Russian military knows about since no one else is privy to their overall strategy. Some journalists and internet folks have started calling the vehicles with Zs or Zs on them the Zorro Squad. In Russia, pro-Putinists are painting Zs on their cars, making Z pins and buttons, or badges if you're British. Russian white supremacists are proudly displaying big white Zs on black t-shirts, which looks decidedly fascist. In the city of Kazan, out in the wilds of Russia's Tatarstan, 60 terminally ill child cancer patients were forced to line up outside the building in the snow, forming a Z while holding flags for a photo op so the hospice administrators could show their support for Putin. Former spy and 2016 election meddler Maria Butina has started sporting a Z on her clothing on social media and in videos. Russian state media journalists have taken to wearing Zs. 20-year-old gymnast Ivan Kuliak, while on the podium recently getting his bronze medal in parallel bars of the International Gymnastics World Cup in Doha, pinned a Z to his leotard while standing next to Ukrainian Ilya Koftun, who took gold, and this landed him in some hot water. My favorite defense for him is that, hey, look, this kid isn't very bright. He was just trying to be patriotic and didn't think it through. Still others have speculated, does the Z stand for zombies? Of course, with all this going on, Christian evangelicals are in a lather thinking that maybe the end times are coming, the trials and tribulations that will rock the world before Jesus returns and God's kingdom is made manifest here on earth. And don't get me started about the numerology people. They are breaking fingernails on their calculator buttons. There are a lot, and I mean a lot of very long rambling videos on YouTube of people claiming to be in direct contact with God and or Jesus. And yes, they have the inside track on what's really going on. And of course, there's the other side of that equation, the New Agers and the UFO gang, who think that the whole Ukraine thing is heralding the arrival of ETs, the unveiling of secret space arcs that have been built and kept in secret for years, and other so-called exopolitics mythology. And finally, here are two of my own creation. First, that Putin is dying and knows it, and so he's going all out. And if he can't have what he wants, then no one else can, and he's just going to blow it all up. Or you'll note that they're going after all the nuclear reactors. This is because the nuclear reactors have been hiding stargates that have just become active again, and NATO was preparing to bring back the Anunnaki, ushering in the reenslavement of humanity, since they created us as slaves in the first place. Or he wants to go in there so that he can bring in the Anunnaki, and Russia will not be enslaved by our alien-slash-demon overlords. So how does this whole thing end? The BBC published an article on March 3rd that outlines five scenarios. It's called Ukraine, How the War Might End. Five scenarios. Good title. One, it'll be a short war over once Russia just goes all out. This would most likely result in Russia defeating the Ukrainian military, killing or arresting Zelensky and the government, and installing a puppet regime that then decide, hey, we want to be part of Russia. Two, it'll go on and on and on with stiff resistance from the Ukrainians. And if Russia does eventually win, whatever winning looks like, a protracted insurgency will continue for years and maybe even decades. Three, it spreads to Europe. Ukraine being only the first step in Putin's bid to reclaim former Soviet land. Moldova seems like an obvious next step. Then Georgia, probably Kazakhstan. Of course, the same issues that plague his efforts in Ukraine will crop up in these places as well. 
Will he go so far as to head into the Baltic states, which were once part of the USSR? Probably not, since all three are EU and NATO, and NATO has said repeatedly an attack on one is an attack on all. But is he willing to gamble that NATO will let these three small countries go in order to avoid a wider and more costly conflict? Maybe. It depends on which experts you believe. 4. Diplomacy prevails. The fighting stops. He forces the world to officially acknowledge that Crimea is part of Russia. The breakaway eastern provinces get their independence from Ukraine. And then later, obviously, they'll join Russia. And Putin gets to put some cronies into the Ukrainian government, who will then poison the pickle barrel from within, gaining more and more support for the idea that, hey, Putin's right, and Ukraine really is and always has been part of Russia, and so we should just rejoin. This is the most likely outcome. Another version of this is that Russia just gives up, turns around, goes home, trying to get those sanctions lifted. But that seems highly unlikely. Putin himself told French President Emmanuel Macron that under no circumstances will Russia leave before their objectives have been attained. The problem is, no one but Putin, and maybe some military commanders, know what those objectives are, or what the minimum achievement he will accept is. And five, someone gets rid of Putin. This is obviously the best case scenario for the West and kind of the purpose of those sanctions. Sanctions have never once changed any regime's thinking or behavior. The purpose of sanctions is to make things so uncomfortable for the people that somebody does something about it. Putin's imperial ambitions are clear and whatever happens in Ukraine, he will not stop. If I lived in Moldova or Georgia or Armenia or Kazakhstan, I'd be looking for a job and housing someplace else because they are clearly next on the menu. Getting rid of him is the only answer. If Putin is ousted and arrested, what would they do with him? Maybe they could take a page out of Napoleon's final defeat and exile him to an island somewhere. Since Putin likes border disputes so much, why not to the Kirio Islands? This is a chain of islands between Hokkaido in Japan and the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia and has been a major source of conflict between these two countries for a very, very long time. This seems kind of like the perfect place for Pooty Poot to putter out his remaining days. There's fishing, some nice Russian Orthodox churches made out of wood, some pretty dramatic countryside. I mean, sure, it's cold being around the same latitude as Seattle, Washington in the U.S., but that shouldn't be a problem for Putin. After all, he's Russian, and he might even be the Ottoman. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.